We began our adventure into the book of Acts, Sunday after New Year's, and that takes us to a unique time in history, a time of a major transition in history, and a transition, if you will, in the unfolding of the redemptive plan of God. It is the transition from the era of the Old Covenant, Old Testament, to the era of the New Covenant. That transition period was about 40 years, or it was a millisecond. In the moment that Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave his life, and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that everyone now has access to God. That was the end of the old. That was the inauguration of the new. But it takes a while for things to change. It takes a while for things to play out, humanly speaking, and it took time for the continuing revelation of God to explain all of this. Now, the book of Acts records the history of about 30 years. The reason I say the transition was about 40 years, well, it was almost 40 years from the time Jesus died until the uh, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the exclamation point on the end of the Old Covenant. Well, the book of Acts records the history of about 30 of those years, from the ascension of Jesus, we've already seen in chapter 1, up to a few years before the Apostle Paul died. Now, the book of Hebrews kind of parallels the book of of Acts, not in any way of recording history, but Hebrews describes the theological transition and was written between the close of the events recorded in Acts and that destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The book of Hebrews, you might guess from the title, was written to primarily Jewish followers of Christ. The book of Acts is addressed to this man Theophilus, who was apparently a Roman regional governor. It is focusing on explaining to the Gentile world what was going on with this Savior of the world who came from among the Jews. Well, Luke, the author of this book, scrupulously makes the connections between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, the New Covenant. He wrote a two-volume set. Volume 1 is the Gospel of Luke. Volume 2 is the book of Acts. And what we come to today was predicted centuries earlier. This isn't just out of the blue. This is exactly as God planned it to be revealed. Now, the most detailed Old Testament announcements of a coming New Covenant are in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, and then Jeremiah refers to it again in chapter 32. And it's mentioned several times in Ezekiel, most notably Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. Now, this was a promised new covenant between God and Israel. It will be fully in effect when Israel embraces her Messiah. That will be when Jesus returns and he sets up the kingdom of God on earth for a thousand years. So as I say, it's a covenant between God and Israel. We're not God and we're not Israel. But here's a marvelous caveat that 
We who believe in Jesus Christ during this era, Jew or Gentile, between now and the second coming, we receive all the spiritual benefits of the new covenant. Not the kingdom on earth, but we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Before Jesus went to the cross, He famously gave us those words that we recite every time we celebrate communion. He held up that chalice and He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Which My blood is a Hebrew euphemism for My death. And so when He died, new covenant instituted. And now we are new covenant believers. We are citizens of a kingdom not of this earth. Now here before we dive into our text, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a, an avalanche of Scripture, but I think it will help you see where we're going. Here's what we are now. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also, catch this, made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter is the reference to the Old Testament Mosaic law. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 goes into much greater depth uh, into the new covenant status of believers in Jesus Christ. But we're talking about Acts now. Now I mentioned in our introduction to the book of Acts that there is a huge emphasis in this book on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a new era of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more than 50 times in the book of Acts. And Jesus quite rigorously connected the dots for His disciples by (laughs) repeatedly speaking of the promises and speaking of the time when the Father would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in His people. During the last year of his life, at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Jesus said this. We have it recorded in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, note this, as the Scriptures said, I'm not giving you something new. This is fulfillment of what was promised. As the scripture said, from his innermost being will will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, we're real close, guys, but not yet. And the Spirit is going to come upon you. That says that this special relationship of believers with the Holy Spirit was going to come after Jesus was glorified. We saw Him ascend to the Father in Acts chapter 1. So the days are really close by the time we get to the book of Acts. Well, as I said, Jesus scrupulously connected the dots for them. The night before Jesus went to the cross, the disciples were very grieved that He said He was going away. So we see this in John 14, 16, and 17. All of John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 all happened on that night before Jesus went to the cross. And in John 14, 16, Jesus says, 
I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And there's a Greek word there, another of exactly the same kind. In other words, another person of the Trinity. That he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because, catch this, he abides with you and will be in you. The Spirit is always with God's people, always has been. But He will be in you? That's some highly theological prepositionisms. With you versus in you. Big transition coming. A glorious new dimension. He will be in you. A little later, that same chapter, verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, promising the disciples they would have all the understanding that they as yet had not put together. And then later, Jesus gave a preview of what we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which I'll quote to you in a little while, about people, his people being his witnesses in John 15. 26 and 27, Jesus said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have seen me, you have been with me from the beginning. You're going to be the ones who bear witness to me and to what I'm doing. Keep going. John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That whole old covenant, all that law was to be your tutor to lead you to Christ. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will use the law to expose your sin to drive you to the Savior. There was no doubt that that was on the minds of that 120 people who gathered in Jerusalem. We met them last week, the 11 apostles, and then the whole group added uh, Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot to fill out the, fill out the full complement of 12 uh, apostles. This was on their minds. Surely they were praying for this. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, we saw this. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember, 40 days had elapsed. Jesus said, I'm going to meet you up in Galilee. They did. Now they're in Jerusalem, and he says, not many days from now. You'll see the connection. Chapter 1, verse 8, that I mentioned we would say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Just like I said to you that night before the cross, guys, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, now we're ready for the big day. The promise arrives. This is a major part of this turning point era 
in human history and the unfolding of God's kingdom program. The promise was reiterated in Acts 1. The disciples were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is in chapter 2. In chapter 2, He comes. In chapter 1, they were held back. Wait here till it happens. In chapter 2, they're empowered. And in chapter 1, Jesus ascends. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends and everything is on in the plan of God. Now, this miraculous arrival of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at 13 verses. Verse 1, the miracle scheduled. Then the miracle announced. The miracle explained. And the miracle questioned. This is exactly on God's schedule. So look at the miracle scheduled. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered in one place. All right, let's just make sure we understand that. They, the antecedent is, that same 120 that we met in chapter 1. The apostles and the other faithful believers, those precious women that are named there, um, they were in one place. Well, it doesn't say it, but logically, almost certainly, it was that same upper room in somewhere in Jerusalem where they had met when they chose Matthias. And that might well have been the same upper room that uh, Jesus had the final Passover with His men. Well, God scheduled this event for the day of Pentecost. Now, the word Pentecost means 50th. It's the New Testament name for what in the Old Testament is called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. It was celebrated 50 days after Passover. Hence, we know this took place 50 days after Jesus died. Pentecost was one of those annual feasts in Israel where people were to come, if they could, to, uh, to the temple. So there were uh, crowds and crowds of people there just as on the Passover. Now, the Hebrew calendar is not our calendar, but on the, in the calendar of Israel, the first annual feast described and set forth in Leviticus 23 is Passover. It's a great picture of the Messiah who is going to come. It was to commemorate how God threw lambs that were sacrificed and their blood applied to the doorpost of the the homes and the angel of death passed over those homes when God killed all of the firstborn among the Egyptians. What a beautiful picture of Jesus, the lamb, the singular lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ Our Passover also has been sacrificed. Immediately on the heels of the Passover came the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days following Passover. And during that feast, um, that was they were to remember it was unleavened bread. Don't even wait for your bread to rise. You're going to leave Egypt in a hurry. Um, Leaven is always a symbol of corruption or sin. Unleavened is a symbol of purity. So this is an idea of having been made holy after the sacrifice of of the Lamb. And God set apart His people from their slavery in Egypt as we are set apart from the world in Christ. Then 50 days after Passover is the the Feast of Pentecost. Another offering of first fruits was required then, as was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's not a surprise that God chose to send the Holy Spirit at the time of Pentecost 
when an offering of first fruits was made because the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our inheritance in Christ. Remember, he's called our arabone, our guarantee. And the analogy most people make is our engagement ring. This is the down payment. We have this incredible inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. And what's the guarantee of the promise? The Holy Spirit that you have. Another picture fulfilled on that day is that this is the day when those first 3,000 people were brought to, to salvation in Christ. Incredible outpouring. We'll see it later in this very same chapter. Well, those are the first fruits of the harvest of souls that's still going on. We're part of that harvest if we're in Christ. Now, do you see again, God always keeps His promises. He fulfills every prophecy specifically. And all of the illustrations in the Old Testament, all of the the formal types of Christ, they're all brought to reality in in Him. This happened exactly on the right day. Just as Jesus was crucified exactly on the right day according to the plan of God. Now, number two, the miracle announced. This is spectacular. Chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Suddenly is a, it's a unique word. It's a, a Greek word that only Luke uses in the New Testament, it emphasizes surprise, something that is startling, something that makes your heart race, that kind of a thing. Now, they knew the promise. They surely had been praying for it to come. They knew it was imminent, but the phenomena that God used to announce this event still was so spectacular it caught everybody by surprise. It even drew a crowd from the city. Now if that makes you think of the descriptions of the second coming, it'll be a surprise on a day you're not thinking about it. Uh, Well, you're on the right track. But this was something spectacular. There came from heaven a noise. The word order puts the emphasis on from heaven. We want to make sure that you don't think this was a meteorological phenomenon. This was an unprecedented noise, but it didn't blow anyone's hair. A mighty rushing, what sounds like a mighty rushing wind, it's got to be something like a tornado or a hurricane. I'm, I'm not sad that I've never been through a tornado or a hurricane, and they're not on my bucket list either. But I've seen the pictures. I've heard people that have been in and around tornadoes say, it sounded like a train coming full speed down our street. A sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. Supernatural activity is 
utterly beyond our grasp. So Bible writers were often guided by the Holy Spirit to use similes to describe things like this. It was like a sound like a tornado or a hurricane, but there was no wind blowing. Now in both Hebrew and Greek, it's interesting the same word is used in both languages for breath, wind, and spirit. You have to know the context to know which is being emphasized. Remember Jesus compared the Holy Spirit to the wind when he spoke to Nicodemus? You know, you say that you hear the wind, the wind blows where it wills, and you can't see where it came from. You can't see where it's going. You can see its work. Well, that's what he's picturing here. Remember Jesus one time breathed on the disciples, one of, his, one of the last times that he predicted this coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, that sound was, we'll see in a few minutes, part of what attracted a crowd. But would you notice it filled only the house where they were sitting. Now, some people like to make the point, I wouldn't press this necessarily too far, but being Jews, had they been praying at that moment, they wouldn't have been sitting. They would have been kneeling or standing. So this really was a shocking surprise, even though it wasn't unanticipated. It was spine-tingling to hear this. Oh, but that wasn't all. First this unprecedented sound, then an unprecedented visual phenomenon. Verse 3, and there appeared to them. Them, in this verse, is they from the verse before, is the 120 who were in the house. There appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Now again, these were as of fire. There were no flames involved. This was not a, some kind of a divine torch. Uh, it's not the fire of judgment that John the Baptist refers to in Matthew 3.11 where the context there <clears throat> is judgment. But just like there was no air moving in <clears throat> when the mighty rushing wind sound came, There was no fire burning with these tongues of fire. Now, tongues as of fire, that's interesting. It says they distributed themselves and rested on each one of them. The word translated distributed, that's a a pretty good uh, translation. If you remember, uh, I I think it's the King James mentions cloven tongues of fire, uh, that they were like they were cut out. Uh, and, and, and they were cleaved, like each person gets a, you know, two parts of a flame um, standing over their head. But the idea is that this fire came and distributed itself and rested on each one of them. So um, I, the Bible doesn't say this, I picture one giant, as it were, ball of fire that then splits up into 120 individual manifestations for those people who were there. So everyone present in that room received the same thing at that same moment. All received the same gift. All saw the same phenomenon. All heard the same sound. This was not something that individually each one sought. There was no instructions, form a line, 
and we'll hand you the gift as you get to the front of the line. It was sovereignly done by God. This was the first instance in history of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's now the norm for every individual at the moment of initial faith in Christ. Now, these people had never read 1 Corinthians. It hadn't been written yet. We know now we're past that transition era. Here is standard procedure when a person comes to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Baptized means immersed, whether Jews or Greeks. So he's saying no distinction between Jews and Greeks. Jews and Greeks come exactly the same way. They receive the same salvation. They receive the same gift. They receive the same Holy Spirit. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. They did not yet realize that at that moment they were baptized, immersed into one new spiritual body. The body of Christ began that day in that room, even though nobody there had all of the revelation about it. The sound and the tongues of fire for this first time was all to call attention to the sovereign work of God fulfilling His promise. Now you have probably heard that this was the beginning of the church, the body of Christ, that new entity that is not Israel. This is Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Now it's true, this was the beginning of the church, the body of Christ, but don't forget, this is in the time of transition. And this is very early in the time of the transition. The temple was still standing. Jews who had not embraced Christ continued under the old covenant. I can imagine that the that the uh, janitorial staff of the, or the maintenance staff of the temple repaired that torn curtain really quick. And they went right back to what they were doing. But the new era has begun, even though the practices of the old one were not snuffed out until A.D. 70, when God arranged for the Romans to destroy the temple. The promise has arrived. The new era has begun. Now, there's going to be much more revelation about the work of the Holy Spirit in believers around the... Uh, about the church, about the body of Christ, but that would unfold in stages. But this is the beginning. I did a little looking to see, just for my own curiosity today, the church first mentions, is first mentioned in Matthew 16. I will build my church. It's mentioned again in Matthew 18 in the context of what we call church discipline. But it's interesting that the first mention of the church in the book of Acts, it's not here in chapter 2, or 3, or 4. There's no announcement. We're going to, hey, we, we, we got to you know, call up the sign company. We got to get some signs made that made, say the made, got to get some signs made that say the church meets here. 
The first mention of the church in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 5, verse 11, where it says, after the Holy Spirit struck Ananias and his wife dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, did that in front of the church, it says, great fear came over the whole church. So by chapter 5, the people there were familiar with the term church, even though it's not used here in the first chapters of Acts. The word church then will show up 18 more times in the book of Acts. It appears once in the book of Hebrews, once in the book of James, three times in 3 John, ten times in the book of Revelation, which is the last letter addressed to the churches. It's addressed to seven specific first century churches in seven specific places. But here's the interesting thing. That word church is used in the writings of the Apostle Paul 75 times. You see, we're at the beginning of the transition. The final touches on God's revelation about the church, which is the body of Christ, of which we are part, that revelation came, not, surpri- not unsurprisingly, or not surprisingly, through Paul. It was his ministry that God used to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one new entity. And he always emphasized that. Remember, any place he went, always in the new city, find the synagogue, use your credentials as a rabbi, go in and tell them about the Messiah. Preach as much as you can, stay as long as you can till they throw you out, take those who believed, go to the Gentiles. It was such an, a, a, a glorious celebration that the wall of partition has been torn down in Christ. Now in a sense, in a sense, you could say the old covenant and the new covenant overlapped by about 40 years. I say only in a sense because it was 40 years after Christ was crucified that the temple was destroyed. But the new covenant began when Christ said, it is finished. Or if you want to say, when he ascended. Or if you want to say, when the Holy Spirit came. Right now, Acts chapter 1 and 2, we know that. But we also know it took a while for all of these promises to be worked out, for all of these for the recognition of what it was, for the gospel to begin uh, to spread. And remember, after the leaders of the Jews had said definitively, Jesus is of the devil. Remember that? Matthew chapter 12. And after, uh, later on, Jesus said to them, Matthew 21, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That people producing the fruit of the kingdom is, starting with that 120, the body of Christ. Still that entity through which God is working. Now up in Romans 9 through 11, we get the full explanation about what has happened since this transition. That Israel has been temporarily set aside until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So we're at the moment of the promise arriving. Now here's the third miracle of that day. And they, they is the they of verse 3, which is the them of verse 2. 
it's the 120, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ placing believers into the body of Christ. It is a sovereign, one-time, unrepeatable act. It seals us in Christ. It is concurrent with new birth, with adoption, with regeneration, with a whole bunch of other things. You receive your, whole, your, your spiritual gifts. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nobody's ever commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a sovereign work of God. But you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled, as we learned in depth in Acts or in Ephesians 5 and 6 a while back, that is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So no one's commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit because we have nothing to do with that. It's the sovereign work of God. But the Baptism of the Holy Spirit enables you to be filled with the Holy Spirit when you let Him take control of you. And so, when these first 120 had now received the Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God granted another miraculous manifestation. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They began speaking in languages that aren't their languages. It would have been as if, suppose we had guests from Africa here today, and we say stand up and uh, greet each other, and one of you starts uh, thinking about the wonderful things that God's done in your life, and you open your mouth, and out comes fluent Swahili for the Swahili speaker. And somebody else hears Urdu. And somebody else hears Pashto. And somebody else hears Spanish. And somebody else hears French. And somebody else hears German. Because they're all speaking in languages they don't know. Trust me. That would be a miracle. I speak in the one language I don't know very well. And I screw it up all the time. But these were people perfectly declaring the marvelous deeds of God. Now there's a tremendous amount of Pentecost of um, uh, yes, there's a tremendous amount of Pentecostalism, but there's a lot of um, unnecessary confusion about this since the birth of Pentecostalism in the early 20th century, and then the practices of Pentecostalism uh, burst at the seams and spread widely through the Charismatic movement starting in the 1970s. And there, is now, uh, there are now lots of people today who claim they have this gift. But they don't. There is a manifestation. Linguists are uh, familiar with it, can describe it. It has been recorded, tested, evaluated. It is not human language. It's called ecstatic speech. It's practiced by... Um, some people in very mystical places. It's practiced in, within cults and with other, within other world religions. But there are some Christians who say, I have that gift. That's the gift of tongues. Or that's my own prayer language. It's not. It doesn't fit the descriptions of this gift here or when it's described in, in 1 Corinthians 
chapters 12, 13, and 14. And as a matter of fact, um, there's a really interesting phenomenon. Test this one out when you look through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, especially uh, chapter 14. And it started with the translators of the King James, and I think it is absolutely valid. When they are describing the real gift, they call it tongues. Another word for languages, plural, because there are many languages. When they describe the pseudo-gift, the ecstatic speech, they call it an unknown tongue, singular, because there are no dialects of gibberish. If it's not linguistically distinct, I don't mean gibberish in a pejorative sense, but I mean things that, does it, that, that don't make any sense at all. This was people miraculously enabled to speak in languages they don't know. Oh, wouldn't it be nice for this gift to be in practice today? I've done a, I've done a lot in the 20 plus trips I've gone to Russia and I've taught for countless hours there. I could have done twice as much if I didn't have to have somebody interpret for me all the time. She's good. A lot of people over there think I'm a good preacher, and I, they have no evidence for that. I know she's a good preacher, but I think she says what I say. In my, It's totally different to be able to speak in a different language. Now, on this occasion, those who understood the Old Testament would have realized this is a great big deal. This is part of the transition We were told about this is God turning away from Israel to a new entity. And again, it would come later, and it came through the Apostle Paul, to whom God gave the explanation. Centuries before this, God had promised through Isaiah that there was judgment coming from God on unbelieving Israel, and it was going to come through foreigners speaking other languages, and that would be a sign to unbelieving Israel that God was judging them. He was referring to the foreigners who came in and whisked them off into captivity. Paul quoted from Isaiah, specifically from Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12, and he said this in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22. In the law it is written, another one, connection to the Old Testament. None of this is surprising. It's the next step of development. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy, speaking forth God's word, is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now we'll be circling back to some of this later times in the book of Acts. But if you think I'm making it up, I'm not. Let's look at the next point. The miracle explained, verses 5 through 11. That noise like a violent rushing wind began to gather a crowd. And those outside the house, apparently 
didn't see the tongues as of fire. We don't know that they did anyway. But when they arrived, when the crowd arrived, they witnessed an unprecedented phenomenon we've never seen before. This is what sets the stage for Peter's great sermon. I can't wait to talk about when we come back to Acts after today. But look at this miracle explained. Verses 5 through 11. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem. Well, a lot of them from all over because the Feast of Pentecost was one of the pilgrim feasts when people were to come, if they could, to the temple, to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would swell with multiples of its normal population with people from all over the known world on Passover and Pentecost and other, other particular feasts. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Yes, that's hyperbolic, but you get the point. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them, antecedent, the 120, was, I'm sorry, each one of the ones gathered, was hearing them, the 120, speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, I would be too, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Well, yeah, they were predominantly from Galilee. And remember, to their perception, Galilee's the other side of the tracks. Galilee is Hicksville. There was no um, linguistic institute centered anywhere in Galilee. Uh, Galileans were regarded as unle- unlearned and These are all Galileans, and they're speaking my language better than I do. What's going on here? Verse 8, and how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Ah, if only they had a recording. Wouldn't that be fascinating? God enabled people among the 120 to speak in every different native language of all who had come on that day. Interesting, you take all the places in that list, get out your, the 67th book of your Bible, no, 67th is Concordance, 68th is Maps, find those places, uh, the gospel eventually went to all of those places. As a matter of fact, Uh, best theory for how the church got started in Rome wasn't an apostle getting there Paul was pretty late to the game if if he ever did get to Rome other than his imprisonment there but he already knew a church was there when he wrote to Rome it was people who were here who heard the gospel who repented who took the gospel home with them and that's where a lot of churches got started and interestingly before he died Peter the one who preached the sermon on this he wrote to believing Jews and Gentiles in several of the places that are on that list. Go check the addresses of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. You'll find some of those things on this list. 
Well, we're going to get to Peter's sermon, but not today. And understand, of course, not everyone there believed. Verses 12 and 13, the miracle is questioned. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. They're just babbling. You know, I, I didn't grow up in the church, and I went to a pretty interesting college place. I've heard drunks talk. It was not foreign languages they don't know. <laughs> now the question is, and we've got to go, we've got a meeting in a minute. The question before us is, do you have the Holy Spirit? The transition is over. There won't be a fireball over your head. There won't be your own personal tornado effects. You won't necessarily start speaking in a language you've never heard of. But do you have the Holy Spirit? In other words, do you belong to Jesus Christ? There's only one way you can. The way you get this gift is the sovereign work of God in placing you into the body of Christ, which always comes through the hearing of the gospel and repenting and turning to Jesus Christ. Let's peek ahead in this chapter. Pretend you've heard Peter preach on that day. We've got a summary of his sermon in Acts chapter 2. I, I would so like to think I can preach the whole thing, preach about it one day. It, it's not going to happen. But look ahead, if you will. Go ahead, read over Acts 2 every day this week if you want to. Read over it for weeks and weeks till we finish it. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 37. Peter's just concluded his sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Remember the Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I don't know about you, when I heard the gospel, pierced to the heart is the right way to describe it. I've got to have Savior. Now that I know I need one. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? There was no equivocation, no hesitation. Peter said to them, repent. Repent means turn around. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And remember, they baptized 3,000 people that day. Look at verse 39 and 40. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. You can be saved. You could have chosen to stay in Israel. Not put that blood over the doorpost. I suppose you could put the blood over the doorpost and then still stay. Yet have still been a slave. But Christ came to set us free from our slavery to sin. Has the gospel message about sin and righteousness and judgment and the forgiveness that is only in Christ Jesus, has that pierced you to the heart?
Have you repented? Have you turned to Him? Have you been baptized to declare to the world, I belong to Jesus? That's where we're going. I hope you're along for the ride. Hope you belong to that Savior. And let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for your glorious gift of salvation. Thank you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that secured us. We're protected by your power for the final step of our redemption, deliverance from the body of this death. Thank you for all of this. Oh, please, don't let a soul leave this place without this knowledge, this gift, standing in your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.